You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning. Yeah, I know that in my previous visits I have referenced this, but I, I feel like uh, that I need to do it again. Um, for 35 years, uh, I've enjoyed a rich relationship with the McMillans. Um, last evening, uh, we were having dinner together and reminiscing uh, about all the people that have come and gone in our lives. And uh, when I was watching Sarah this morning, this is the first time I've ever had the experience of being in a meeting where Sarah has led worship. And oh, have I been missing something for sure. Uh, but to see the children up here involved as, as well, I was thinking of John's statement when he said, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. And um, my youngest, when he was 13 years old, played with John Mark in his band. And my middle son, who's now the uh, worship leader at Seacoast in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, started out with John Mark. And, um, you know, those memories are priceless, to say the least. And I don't want you to feel like I'm placating you by any means. But when I came in this morning from the very first song, especially... When you consider the present climate that we're in that is so toxic and almost asphyxiating, you know, you feel like you're choking. You, do you find yourself throughout the day taking a deep breath? I mean, it's, it's like it's, there's something in the air almost. And so when I stepped in here from the very first song, it was like stepping into a hyperbaric chamber. You know what a hyperbaric chamber is? A hyperbaric chamber is this enclosed space where the oxygen can be three to five times, like 25% more than what you experience outside of that. And, of course, the purpose of it is to accelerate healing, uh, to assist the body to restore itself. Did anybody have that sense this morning during the worship? I mean, I my lungs were expanded during the worship day, so appreciate. Um, well, Andy, everybody here, you guys are so blessed. Do you know that? Amen. Wow, your enthusiasm is overwhelming this morning. Um, yeah, it, it really is. It's an amazing thing. You know, in light of everything that is going on in the world right now, I think we it's important that we are reminded uh, of an old Indian proverb that I've taken um, an affinity for. Uh, and it goes like this. It says, everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not, it's not the end. Now, I don't know what your theology is about where we're heading to in these, uh, quote, unquote, apocalyptic times, which is one of the most misused and abused words in all the Christian vocabulary. Because apocalyptic has absolutely nothing to do with some cataclysmic event that is looming on the horizon. The word apocalyptic has to do with an unveiling, a discovery. And so I think 
for me at least, if you'll just allow me to ruminate a little bit before I get to a text, I'll, I'll just keep talking till eventually I say something, all right? Um, but all of us have a worldview, whether you are aware of it or not, and that worldview is heavily influenced by two things, either your elders or your environment. And when we talk about a viewpoint, a viewpoint is very subjective in as much as it is a view from a particular point. The way I see things are not necessarily the way they are. It's just the way that I see them. And most often, I am not aware of my bias. Are you with me so far? Uh, The talking heads and the influencers of our time have in many ways hijacked our perspective and, uh, and they've done it very subtly. Uh, this past week, I thought of a profound statement that I read many years ago by Marcus Aurelius, who said, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact, and everything we see is a perspective, not a truth. Now, I don't want to be offensive here in the early going, but the generation sitting here, for the most part, a long time ago, they drank the Kool-Aid, and I, yeah, I said it. They drank the Kool-Aid of the late, late great planet Earth in Armageddon. And um, so they seem to be always looking for a reason for something else that is signaling the end of the world. And so I, I think it might be the end of the world as we know it. But that doesn't mean that the end belongs to some sinister plot. Isaiah said it so eloquently. He said, God declared the end from the beginning. And when we talk about the future, we we need to understand that God is already in our future. He's already there. As profoundly simple as that is, he's already in our future. And our life is going to continue to go on, maybe just not the way we thought it would. And But see, this becomes so problematic for so many people that are limited in their perspective by the, being so close to the trees, they just cannot see the forest. God is doing new things. I said, God is doing new things. I've told you before, I tend to go longer when I feel like people are not getting my point. So, um, yeah. So, everybody this morning, um, you, whether you did it manually, most of you, it happened uh, automatically, digitally. You um, reset your clock, right? We do it twice a year. And uh, it always reminds me that every time that this happens that I'm giving the opportunity myself for a reset. I, I don't take it as something is just an automatic. And I'm sure that uh, a lot of you at this particular point, after two years of what we've gone through, uh, you probably would opt for not just springing forward an hour, but maybe a year or two or three. <laughs> So I love what Anne Lamott says, one of my favorite authors. She says, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. 
And so I think we, we really are in a time right now where we have an opportunity for a reset. Uh, I want to invite you to the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12. And while you're finding your place there, there's been something that has been gnawing at me for the last several days. Uh, Actually, it's been something that's been gnawing at me for a few years now. One thing that pastors are really good at, I've discovered, present company included, is answering questions that nobody's asking. I mean, we can spend 60 weeks out of a year (laughs) on series that uh, may flaunt our theological fortitude and understanding, and we're disseminating, you know, all this information, but it doesn't always translate into transformation, does it? So what are the real questions that people are wrestling with right now? Tolstoy said that historians are like deaf people who go on answering questions that no one has asked them. So it's my intention. I'm setting you up. You probably already sense that, don't you? Those of you that have been in other meetings uh, that I've been speaking, you, you know I have a tendency to do that. So I'm trying to posture your thinking and help you to understand that so much of what is going on right now that is driven by what I would refer to as the myth of scarcity. And that probably sounds like a ludicrous statement, that scarcity is a myth. But I intend, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to make a case against that. In Luke chapter 12, uh, beginning with verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's one of the reality checks that we are having right now, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I'm sure you've heard uh, a lot of the quips about how most of us here in the West struggle with first world problems. I mean, it's rather humorous, isn't it? Uh, Problems like, you know, uh, I can't get a signal for Wi-Fi, right? I mean, the, the list goes on and on. You know, I... I have more clothes than I have hangers. Uh, you know, I've, I've got this iPhone and the new ones come out, but I've got to keep this relic, this antique, until I'm through with my contract. And I don't mean for that to have a condemning tone to it, but in the last couple of weeks in particular, as I've watched what's been unfolding in the world, the horror when I when I see what this despot is doing, uh, people that have worked all their lives and they're having to walk away from their homes and their possessions and their bank accounts. Uh, has anybody else been a little bit convicted by that? 
And of course, I don't want to, I'm not talking about being condemned by it. I mean, I, I shouldn't feel guilty for living where I live, but it should be a reality check for me. It should cause me to revisit my core values. That's what it's doing for me. And I think that that's what's happening in this passage of scripture. Now, what was I when you interrupted me? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produces plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And these things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want to talk to you about scarcity and sufficiency. Scarcity and sufficiency. I believe that this is probably more relevant than anything that I could talk to you about today. Uh, I have a friend that lives down the street from me that posted a rather humorous meme this past week. And it said, I'm pretty excited. Our loan was approved. We're closing on a full tank of gas this weekend. And of course, you know, I'm by, by no means don't pretend to be uh, an economist at all. Uh, but I believe that if all the economists in the world were laid end to end, they probably still wouldn't reach a conclusion. No way. So it seems like in what we just read, if you didn't notice already, that Jesus, as was his, was characteristic for him, he is always telling unorthodox and unsettling stories, isn't he? Always doing that. And before we get to the heart of the parable, I think it's important for us to see what, uh, to be clear about what it's not about. I don't think that Jesus was condemning wealth. So if you think I'm here, um, and I, and I have, you know, some sort of hidden message, encrypted message where I'm going to be condemning capitalism, which by the way, capitalism has a dark underbelly to it, just like communism does. That didn't seem to go over very well, uh, but it does. And it makes it increasingly more difficult when we examine the teachings of Jesus about materialism and capitalism. And we try to square that. We try to harmonize that with the way that we conduct our lives. I mentioned earlier about a viewpoint is very subjective. It's just a view from a particular point. And our worldview is has been so skewed and in these apocalyptic times we're beginning to see things from a different perspective. Would you agree with that? I think we're coming back to the gospel and we're seeing things that we maybe intentionally didn't ignore, but they've been there all along. So Jesus is not really condemning wealth, 
not even the desire for more wealth. That's not what he's talking about. So many people believe in the virtue of poverty. The truth is, though, some of the poorest people I know are very wealthy. And I'm not just talking about those who have yet to accept Jesus. I know a lot of wealthy people that consider themselves a part of the community of faith, but really they are suffering from a form of poverty that is more devastating than someone that is homeless living under a bridge here in Charlotte. I know that seems like, uh, you know, a paradox or maybe even a conundrum, but it's true. The key to this text, though, is found in the verses 15 and 21 when Jesus makes the purpose of what he's saying very clear. He introduces the parable by basically saying, watch out, be on your guard, all kinds of greed, against all kinds of greed in your life. And don't abdicate to this idea that life consists in the abundance of things. And then he, then he finishes up what we just read here. And he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Jesus, in my opinion, is warning about getting out of balance. About our tendency, our propensity to get out of balance. And what leads up to this particular story or parable happens there in that first verse that I read to you in verse 13. There's someone that just brought a disruption. And uh, we, we are in very disruptive times right now. And this person just speaks up from the crowd and is demanding equity. He is demanding that a situation be resolved that he had concluded was unjust. So what does he say? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, there were disputes back then as there are now over this sort of thing. And the reason why that he appealed to Jesus was because in that particular culture, it was common for situations like this to be resolved, the arbitration took place at the hands of a rabbi. And Jesus, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've found this to be true throughout the Gospels. He has asked a question and his response seems to be as if, did you even understand the question to begin with? His questions were often answered with more questions. Because he understood the importance of that. He, I, I think that, you know, we have this wrong idea about Jesus that he came to teach people what to think. And when in reality, he came to teach people how to think. He was not coercive. He understood, as it's been said for years, that a man who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So he turns the whole thing on its head. And he begins to talk about something that does not seem relevant to the question that the man raised. The man's request wasn't unreasonable. No one who would have heard him in that crowd would have been surprised. He had a legit grievance. And the rabbis were the wise ones. They were the ones that were supposed to settle these family disputes. But Jesus refused to become involved in that. 
Do you find yourself right now pleading with God to intervene in certain situations and he appears to be totally indifferent to it? Or what is beginning to unfold, you have concluded that you are not getting the answers that you expected. Maybe they are not coming in the way that you expected them, in the form that you expected them. God does answer us, but he is under no obligation to comply to the details of our request. Most often when that happens is because he realizes that what you're asking, if he were to respond on that level, then it would mean that he would give you less than what he originally intended. So Jesus does not have a problem with the super rich. He is not condemning this man for the accumulation, but the way his attitude had turned toward it. Let's build bigger. Let's do more. I think that oddly enough, in a counterintuitive way, that reflects a mindset of scarcity. I got a question for you, and it's not a trick one. What's one half of infinity? That's your infinity. Thank you. What's one fourth of infinity? What's one eighth of infinity? There's just a, a couple of people that have the courage to respond. How many of you are not going to answer no matter what I ask? It's infinity, isn't it? And that seems like a tri trivial set of questions, but I think what Jesus is really trying to do is jar their thinking away from this idea of scarcity. Because we live in an infinite kingdom. Yeah. Now, make sure you don't misunderstand what follows. The universe, maybe not the planet, but the universe is 13.8 billion years old and has been expanding at the speed of light since he said, let there be light. It's still expanding. We can't wrap our minds around infinity, right? This, you say, are you reading this out of that particular story? That's exactly what I'm reading because I think that right now, what we are being conditioned to believe because of what is happening to you at the pump or what is happening to you for, with the price of groceries. Am I talking to the right people at all? Is this true in Charlotte? I, I see people steaming over this, you know, and I want to ask, how's that working for you? Really, how's that working for you? That's why we have to return to what Jesus has always taught us about abundance. Once I believe that once we let go of this myth of scarcity, that in that moment is when we begin to understand the surprising truth of sufficiency. I don't want to be nitpicking about this, but 
I, sometimes it, it kind of, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard when I hear somebody say, God has never failed me yet. Does that bother anybody else? God has never failed me yet. I mean, that seems, that seems to be our default setting. That seems to be, okay, I got to make sure I say yet. Correct? And when I talk about sufficiency, I'm not talking necessarily about a quantity of any, anything. Sufficiency isn't an amount at all. It's an experience. It's a context in which we we uh, generate a declaration, a knowing that there is enough and that you are enough. You know, maybe you have uh, examined this before, but there are a number of really, is there named by some scholars, difficult or hard sayings that Jesus made. They are enigmatic in many ways. Uh, Like, let the dead bury the dead. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Those are hard sayings. And... In light of what's happening right now in our economy, I think that the statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 16, if you want to flip over there, Luke chapter 16 and uh, verse 13, he says, and I I wish I could go back if I had time and put it into uh, better context, the parable that leads up to it. But he says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other and he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. Difficult saying, isn't it? Especially in the culture that we live in. Especially in a capitalistic, consumeristic culture that we live in right now. And we tend, when we read that, to think, you know, as the Franciscans would say, that we should all take a vow of poverty. I don't think that the really devoted Franciscans, if you're not familiar with that particular sect of the Catholic Church, who take vow, you know, they follow the teachings of St. Francis, who took a vow of poverty. And if you're not familiar with that, don't worry yourself over it. Uh, I don't think that St. Francis intended, when he taught those principles, necessarily to alienate people or to be self-righteous in his teaching of that. But I think he understood that the grace that was on him's life required him to take that particular vow. And I don't, you know, I don't need to compare myself to that and you don't need to compare yourself to that. But there is something that I can learn from that because God never tests us to see what we've learned as if he doesn't already know. He is constantly testing us to see if we're still willing to learn. I mean... Uh, I feel myself digressing here just a bit. 
But um, many years ago, I don't know that I've told this story before, we had uh, a missionary that we supported in Haiti. Uh, there's some of the people here this morning that attended our church back in those days. His name was George Detellis. Uh, what he accomplished there in Haiti was staggering. The scope of his ministry, uh, thousands of people he impacted, dug the first freshwater well in Haiti. His vision was that the reason for all of the paganism and the uh, people who followed voodoo practices was because of ignorance. And so his goal was to go there and educate them. You know, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. And I thought it was brilliant. By the time that I went to visit there in Haiti, and when I landed in Port-au-Prince, truly a third world country, and we're traveling from the airport to his compound, I'd never witnessed, and I've traveled the world, I've been in other third world countries, but I've never witnessed anything like that. It was inhumane. The conditions that people were living, the squalor that people were living in. It was so shocking. I can still see the vivid, vivid images. It's like it was burned in my brain. When I get to his compound, though, it is like going into the New Jerusalem. Everything changed. He went there so many years ago and with nothing, absolutely nothing. He and his wife uh, lived in tents for the first two years. And uh, <clears throat> you can't imagine the vermin. You can't imagine the infestation of mosquitoes. He got malaria and dengue fever and yellow fever, almost died more than once. But by the time that I got there, he had 5,000 students in his school from grades 1 to 12, had dug this freshwater well. So I told you, just that's just a little bit about him. And he'd come to our church once a year. And by the way, he never, ever fled the country whenever there was unrest in the government. He was one of the only missionaries that stayed through it all. When I would go with him into the villages, people would come out by the hundreds and follow him like he was Jesus. Here's my point. There is a point in there somewhere. <clears throat> when he would come to our church to share what he was doing, I remember I was in my 30s and I'm sitting on the front row and I'm listening to this man talk about his vision and how he had committed his life. Love not his life even unto death, as the scripture says. I remember the first time I was so living in a first world country in the West with all of my comforts, I sit there, and when he's done, I'm feeling like, you know, I don't even have the right to hold a microphone or open a Bible in front of an audience. I was comparing myself to him. It would sometimes take me weeks to get over that. <clears throat> the second or third time that he came, George was up sharing, and I didn't hear the audible voice of the Lord, but I did hear inwardly the Lord speak to me very clearly and definitively, and he said, you're impressed with the wrong thing. I said, what? He said, you're impressed with George. He said, you should be impressed with the grace that I've put on his life. Because George would not be capable of doing that had I not given him the grace to do it. Now, I took that little sidetrack because I felt like it was important, you know, um, because I don't want to come across this morning heavy-handedly and 
make you sound, make it sound like that, you know, I'm condemning anyone, you know, but I do believe that this, the days that we're heading into can potentially be defining moments for us. Does anybody agree with that? Does that resonate with anyone? It can really be defining moments. It's like what John Mark was talking about earlier when he was talking about the efforts in Ukraine. A guy that I know, um, I got this secondhand conversation from somebody I have a great respect for, Dr. Chris Green, uh, was his, his take on what was happening in Ukraine. He said, you know, he said, why aren't believers instead of, you know, arguing over being pacifist or engaging in pacifism? He said, why aren't they praying for miracles like the Old Testament that their chariots will get stuck in the mud? Of course, he's talking about tanks. Why aren't we praying that like Pilate's wife, that those who are closest to Putin will have dreams in the night? Why aren't we praying for some of these Old Testament over-the-top miracles? You know, we think the only solution, right, which involves another myth, is the myth of redemptive violence because violence always begets violence. The kingdom of Jesus was not about bringing peace through violence. It's so counterintuitive to us, isn't it? But there is a, there is a way, there is a quote-unquote warfare, and I am, you know, I'm somewhat negligent to even use that term warfare because of what it's been reduced to, because most of what we call spiritual warfare is nothing but shadow boxing. That's all it is. That's why Paul said, I fight not as one who beats the air. And I see a lot of people, you know, that are engaged sincerely in what they think is called spiritual warfare. Maybe some of the solutions that we are looking for right now are already chronicled in Scripture. And we can begin to pray for those things. We can begin, you know, sure, the efforts for the Ukraine. One of my dearest friends in the whole world, Randy Strombach, is friends with the uh, Minister of Defense in the Ukraine. I was talking with him just a couple of weeks ago about what is happening there. And he's telling me things that you're not getting in your news feed because they have massive ministry throughout the nation of Ukraine. So I think this morning that, again, we, we are experiencing somewhat of a reality check. I know I am. I don't know where you are. And I repeat what I said earlier about the end. Because, I, you know, I hear this. I hear the rumblings of this everywhere. You know, this is, this is the precursor to the end, but I do believe, not just the base, on the basis of the Indian proverb, but I do believe on the basis of what this book teaches me. That in the end, everything's going to be all right, or it's just not the end. And you may feel like in, in your personal little cloistered world that it's coming to an end. No, it's not coming to an end. It's coming to an end maybe in the way that you've known it to be. Because I just cannot buy into this erroneous idea that God set all this in motion so that it would eventually come to an egregious failure. 
that this whole thing, this idea that he had, this brainchild, if you will, of creating a human race, that this human race would totally self-implode. And there would only be a few. You don't want to get me started on this whole abuse of the remnant. There would only be a few. Even Jesus' statements about that have been grossly misunderstood. We don't yet to this day fully understand, much less begin to apprehend the total inclusive nature of what God is doing with humanity. If he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that should set it. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is not some failed human experience that he started. And I know what some people are hearing, especially fundamentalists. Oh, yeah, because we're going to win. No, 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 no. In the kingdom of God, it's never somebody wins and somebody loses. In the kingdom of God, it's always a win-win situation. You get this, somebody's a winner, somebody's a loser from our culture. You won't find that in the teachings of Jesus. In the end, he is going to win. We're all going to win. And you say, that's optimistic. Yes, it is. It certainly is. Thank you very much. Because what is optimism? It has everything in the world to do with the way you see it. I choose to see it through the lens of a prophetic imagination that is allowing us to imagine an alternative reality. Because all of the prophets in the Old Testament, Walter Brueggemann, this brilliant Old Testament prophet, uh, 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 scholar, writes in his book called Prophetic Imagination that the prophets of the Old Testament, that we have mischaracterized them. We have made them to appear to be those that were always forecasting doom and the end of everything. When in reality, most of them were the pre-exile or within exile, in the experience of exile, that they were trying to help the people of Israel to see an alternative future rather than the one that everybody had succumbed to. You got me stirred up now. And I know what time it is. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus is creating a clear dualism between God and what we what he calls mammon, and mammon was just the god of wealth and money, superficiality and success. So Jesus is basically saying eventually we've got to make a conscious decision here. It's always been interesting to me that the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels is the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes. You ever notice that? It's the only one that is recorded in all four Gospels. And I think that warrants us making a little closer inspection of it. You're all familiar with it. You've heard about it since you were in Sunday school. In John chapter 6, the, the narrative of that Specifically, and you got to see the context of these things because to me, it is not just hearing what Jesus said, but where he said it and when he said it and to who he said it to. So you got 
5,000 men are there, possibly 25,000, counting the women and children. And the scripture says that they're essentially in a desolate place. And it was at the Passover that this happened. So there's all these factors that are converging at one time. He's been teaching all day long, and he recognizes, he can see in the eyes of the people, these people are hungry. They're really hungry, and it's intense. And you know the exchange that takes place. Philip comes to him. What what do you want us to do? And I love how Jesus would engage them, you know. It, It even says, he asked them, he said, what do you have? Already knowing what he was going to do. Love that. Why does he ask the question when he already knows what he's going to do? What do you have? Well, we have five loaves and two fishes, but what are these among so many? They missed a teaching moment. Let me tell you what he's trying to do. He is trying to awaken in their collective consciousness. Now, you got to track with me on this one. When we talk about scarcity, what are these among so many? He's trying to awaken in their collective consciousness something that goes all the way back to the Exodus. Because they're in a wilderness, they're in a barren place. In the same way that the children of Israel had come out in the Exodus, and here they are in this desolate place with no water and no food. That's scarcity. The context is the same because it happens at Passover. When was the inaugural Passover? It's when they came out in the Exodus. And the disciples missed the whole point. He's trying to awaken something, and I use the term collective consciousness, because in their minds was still embedded scarcity. Because when they came out of Egypt, they came out as slaves. Believing this myth of scarcity. And the whole thing that set that in motion, and I don't want to throw Joseph under the bus, but Joseph conspired with Pharaoh, and this is essentially what started the economy of scarcity. Remember the whole dream that Pharaoh had and the way Joseph interpreted it? Some of you may think, oh my gosh, how could you say such a thing about Joseph? Well, Joseph's original idea about how to manage resources was a good one, but what happened is it deteriorated into a control system. And it ingrained in the minds of the people scarcity, and it followed them for, is this making sense to you? It followed them for generations, and here Jesus is in a very similar context And he's attempting to break this generational thing of scarcity. What is a half of infinite? Infinity. Now, I understand, you know, just how difficult this is for our national, our, our, yeah, I was going to say natural, rational minds, but I was, I, it almost slipped out national. <laughs> but it's true. Our natural, rational, logical, because we live in a democracy and we live in a meritocracy. I mean, that's, that's how you navigate through life, right? 
It's a quid pro quo. You do this and you get this in return. But in the kingdom of God, it's about grace. It has nothing to do with what you deserve. It has nothing to do with how much sweat equity you've put into it. Wow, is that challenging to us? This is the undercurrent of everything that Jesus, which by the way, two-thirds of Jesus' teaching were not about heaven and hell. They were about the marketplace. It was about how we live and how we manage with what we've been given. Remember I told you that most people in my position are usually answering questions that nobody's asking. I think these are the questions that people are asking right now, in my opinion. I'm encountering it everywhere I go. So what are we going to do? Are we going to wait till midterms? That's what some of you are thinking. Oh, okay. So I'm held hostage by this party or that party. Really? That just proves right there you're serving mammon. Man, that was like throwing a hairdryer in your bathwater, wasn't it? I mean, seriously, I've been yelling at the TV too. Anybody else? Oh, come on. Yeah, I've been yelling. And I catch myself. What are you doing? Do you really believe when he said, I am come that you might have life. Wait a minute now. He's not talking about Zoe. He is not talking about life after this life. You've heard me say this before, I'm sure here. Most people live life as if it's a sexually transmitted disease or if it's a sentence that has been pronounced upon them and they have to serve that sentence And then I hear, you know, my old Pentecostal brethren, and, and I understand, please, I'm not trying to be mean here. Do you feel like I'm being mean? I'm not trying to be mean. This world is not my home. Yeah, it is. Did that upset you? Well, this world is not my home, this escapist mentality. Well, why in the name of God do you think he even let you come here anyway? (laughs) Why waste? What a waste you are. This is why Jesus used strong language. He, He said, you fool. He is more than enough. You are more than enough. And when we begin to operate, again, I am come that you might have life in this life and have it more abundant. And and if you feel like this is just some pep talk, you've missed the point altogether. It's not a pep talk. It is alternative wisdom. It is an alternative way of looking at things. You know, I've heard testimonies from my friends that uh, have ministry out in California that have witnessed the multiplying of Bibles, the multiplying of food whenever they go on mission trips. 
Hey, listen. Does that sound like fun? The next time you fill up your car, you know exactly how many miles it gets to the gallon. Is it too far-fetched or bizarre to suggest that you begin to believe in the power of God's multiplication? Is that not relevant? It's not realistic. I hear you. Well, go ahead. Live in that world if you want to. Live in that world. Again, that's what Jesus is talking about. We don't have to live in a mindset of scarcity. But sufficiency. Come on. How many times have you said, my God. Come on. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches. Not the gross national product. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory through and by Christ Jesus. What if this is an opportunity for us in the days ahead for people that think that you are certifiably crazy because you are a follower of Jesus and they see the multiplication in your life in the midst of great scarcity. Sounds like a plan to me. Amen. Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I'll tell you that right now. Jesus, you are the creator of all things and you own all things. And I can go so far to say as you inhabit all things. We thank you, Lord, that we, you know, we've relegated this passage of scripture to, when, when, to funerals. We sorrow not as others who have no hope. Yes. But it has more of an a broader application than that because we believe in the power of resurrection. As frigid as it was last night and I came out this morning to start my car, I still saw the Bradfords in the wind and their beautiful blossoms and the flowers making their way up out of the ground. And I thank you this morning, Lord, that in this season of Lent, as we are approaching this great feast of resurrection, that we're going to see resurrected hopes and dreams. Come on, anybody believe, need that? Anybody need that? Resurrected dreams. We're going to see multiplication, not just for our own consumption, not just for our own greed, but Lord, so that it would flow through us. And we thank you for that. Bless this house. Bless Queen City Church. You already have, but I believe that the best is yet to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Trying to cut you off. Huh? Well, come on. That's really good. Um, I have amazing testimonies about provision. And I don't often give them because 
people in churches are so cynical or can be so cynical. They often think people like me who make their living by doing this are saying these things so that you will give more money. And that's true and not true. We have a budget over 40000 a month. Sometimes we don't make it. But we always do make it. The Lord's amazing to help us. But we are committed to giving away a minimum of 10% of everything that ever comes in here. We've paid for three wells or so in Africa, missions in Cuba, orphanages, um, a ministry to Israel that provides hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of aid to whoever needs it, Jewish, Gentile, Arab, whatever. So we're committed to a life of devotion. When my wife and I went into ministry, we were in the most debt we'd ever been in in our life, and we went out on a mission of a faith venture, and here was my devotion. And, and, and I, want, I want to challenge some people today. Here was our devotion. I would pay my tithe. I'm not talking about tithing, but to me, a tithe is minimum generosity in a believer's life. That's my devotion. We would pay our tithe and trust the Lord, even if it was questionable that we could pay our house payment. Now, I'm not saying you should do that, but I had to know, can I trust God? Not theoretically, in my life. We had kids in college on a pastor's salary when the church wasn't, it was in the grow and development mode. We had financial needs and I told my wife, here's what we're going to do. This is a testimony. And the idea built into testimony is God can do it again. And I would not dare impose what I believe on anybody because as Randall said, when you force people to believe something against their will, they've never really changed their mind. But if you can encourage people to see God in another way, it can expand your life. So I told my wife, here's what we're going to do. And this is all in the context this morning with receiving uh, Randall's offering. We're going to take $1,000 out of our home equity, and we're going to give it to a missionary. And that's what we did. And the next day, that same missionary at a conference, the Lord woke him up in the morning and say, give Robin a check for $2,000. How many of you think that's remarkable? Well, it was not remarkable enough because the Lord said, take that $2,000 and give it to these other missionaries. I was already up two for one. And this is the honest truth. It's never really happened like this since, but this is what happened. The Lord woke a wealthy man up and told him to write me a check for $10,000 as a gift, which is the kind of money we needed to start straightening out the mess we'd made of our lives as we were trying to enter into a life of faith. That's my testimony. That's what happened. That's no Ploy to get your money. Keep your money. But may God cause us to be the kind of 
spiritual nobility that sons of the king are called to be. Randall's message on scarcity, I'm sure he shook, jiggled some brains with some of his ideas and concepts this morning. And that's a good thing. We need to be shaken sometimes. But we're receiving this morning's offering. And if you want to give, you do it the normal way. But um, what is it on our website? You choose um, under fund, you select guest speaker. And whatever comes in for Randall, we'll give him. And if it's not enough, we'll add to it. That's right. How much does it take you to live in a month? What do you think it takes for a man who has four opportunities a month to live his life and make, make his income? Randall never says, how much am I going to get? Never. Never. So um, we do have... Um, has everybody checked up here and you can give money on your phone and you can also, we have envelopes, um, in the buckets here. If you want to give that way, cash checks, just make a note. It was for this second offering and we will be sure Randall is blessed because that's God's heart. So everybody okay? Did you feel worked over by me here? I didn't want you to, but I have a test. I have testimonies. I know a living God. I've had to prove it out. My goodness. At 59 years old, with no visible means of support, we started this church. Stuart said the other day, in the last legs of Robin's pastoral ministry, he began a church. That's what Stuart said. I thought, well, I didn't realize that. So anyway, God bless you folks. Put money in for Randall. Go have lunch. Come back next week and bring somebody with you because we are a valuable commodity here, the sum total of who Queen City Church is, and you make up a significant part of that church. So God bless you. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.